Good morning. Today it's our blessing to light the candle of joy. Um, As the coming of Jesus draws near, our joy builds uh, with the anticipation of the day of his birth. So we'll now read from the book of Isaiah. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Isaiah 65:18. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. Please bow with me as we pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your son and for this season. God, it's a season of joy. We thank you. We invite you into this room. We invite you to speak to us through David's word today. We invite joy into our lives. God, we joyfully praise you, Lord, for the fulfillment of your promise of a Savior and what that means in our lives. Thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Help us to see your glory as you fill our lives with your spirit. Amen. Those of you that have been with us the past few weeks know that during this Advent season, uh, we are preaching through the Christmasiests of Christmas books, that is the book of Revelation. This week, during my preparation, during my reading and studying and prayer, there was pretty much one song that was constantly running through my head, and it is the Christmasiest of all Christmas songs. That is the great hair metal anthem, The Final Countdown by Europe. You guys remember that? Like, if I heard that in my head one time this week, I heard it a million times. Um, My wife dared me to actually walk up onto the stage with that song playing in the background. I almost did it, but thought better at the last minute. I begged Drew to open the worship service with that this morning. Somehow he thought better of that as well. But the reason it's been going through my head is because... Today, we've, we've gotten there. We've reached it. It's the ultimate battle. It's Armageddon. Everything leads up to this. This is what all the movies are about. This is what all the books are about. But in order to get to that place in Revelation, the final countdown, the ultimate battle, we have to skip a couple of chapters, like chapters 6 through 18. There's some stuff in there 
there's some things that happen, and, and don't worry. We're not ignoring all of that content. I'm not going to cheat you out of all of those 13 chapters. So let me get you up to speed so that we can reach Revelation chapter 19. In 6 through 18, we kind of have um, what's known as the three cycles of seven. You get the seven seals, you get the seven trumpets, and you get the seven bowls. Now, there's tons of symbolism and word pictures and just crazy things that are going on during these three cycles of seven, but it can kind of be boiled down to one general idea. What we see in those 13 chapters are the increasing opposition against God, the increasing rebellion of people against God, and and the increasing nature of God's judgment against his enemies. It's kind of this whirlpool effect. It just keeps going around and around and around. It's, it's in those chapters that we see uh, Babylon named. John uses that in Revelation as kind of um, the, the symbolic picture of the enemies of God. It's where we see the dragon that's Satan. It's where we see the beast, the Antichrist. Um, in fact, flip with me real quick to Revelation chapter 13. Just to give you kind of an idea of what's going on in these 13 chapters. In fact, I'm going to back up one verse to the last verse of Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading right there. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. If you fast forward to the end of that chapter, we see the famous number of the beast, right? 666. It's where all this stuff goes down. The dragon and the beast and 666. These chapters, these chapters are where Armchair prophets make their money. These chapters are where all the doomsday prophecy comes from. 88 reasons the world was going to end in 1988, remember? Every few years, some pastor in some camp out in Oregon or something tells us that he's kind of deciphered the code and he knows exactly who the Antichrist is and he's done all the math and he knows all the symbols and he knows the exact date that Armageddon's going to happen, the exact date that Christ is going to return. He knows the exact identity of the Antichrist and it's, it's Hitler or it's Mussolini or it's Anwar Sadat. It's Joel Osteen, it's Barack Obama, it's Donald Trump, it's Nick Saban probably. (laughs) Everyone knows what it is, right? Hear me say this this morning. There are those that believe... And there are those that have tried to make you believe 
that the book of Revelation is a web of symbols and codes that when properly deciphered point us to the date of Armageddon, point us to the identity of the, the Antichrist. I've said it several times over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to say it again today. This book, the book of Revelation, is not at all about revealing the Antichrist. It is all about revealing Christ. And as Revelation chapter 18 ends... Babylon falls and is defeated. As we enter into Revelation chapter 19, we get to see another picture, image of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, revealed. In the first three chapters of Revelation, we see Jesus as as the leader, the king of his church, the Lord of his church. In chapters 5 through 8, we get to see Jesus as the Lion of Judah, the eternal king that we sang about just a few minutes ago. We also see Jesus as, as the slaughtered lamb, the eternal savior. This morning in chapter 19, we get to see Jesus as the warrior king, the rider on the white horse, the ultimate conqueror and final judge. Would you stand with me as I read out of Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, he being the angel, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The angel also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings. 
and Lord of Lords. God, you are so awesome. And we are so grateful. Speak now, for your servants are listening. Y'all can be seated. Enter Jesus Christ, the rider on the white horse, in preparations for the final and ultimate battle. Here's the plan for this morning. We're going to take this passage and we're going to kind of start at the end and work backwards. Here in Revelation 19, we again have this, this identity of Jesus revealed. That's what revelation is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 11 through 16. He's named faithful and true. He even has, in verse 12, a name that no one knows but himself. Does that remind anyone of anything? Does it bring to mind maybe Exodus chapter 3? Moses, bebopping through the wilderness, suddenly sees a burning bush where God reveals himself. In that burning bush, God says to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh... It's time to let my people go. And I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses says, all right, I mean, that's cool. I like that plan. Um, but they're probably going to ask who sent me. So what's your name? Who should I say sent me to do this? And God in Exodus chapter 3 tells Moses, I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent you. The rider on the white horse has a name that only he knows. He's wearing this robe that is covered in blood. Now, how's this for a picture? Rider on a white horse, charging to the front lines for battle, wearing a robe that's covered in blood. Whose blood? It's his own blood. You see, Jesus as the great conqueror, the Messiah conquered by shedding his own blood. He wears that to the final battle as though to remind his enemies You remember that day? You remember that day that you nailed me to a cross? That day that you thought it was all over and the victory was won? You know what? You were right. Because on that day, it was all over. And the victory was one, and it's one through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come to the front lines. He doesn't come to the final battle, you know, riding a tank, bare-chested with a couple of AK-47s, a nuclear explosion behind him and a bald eagle swooping down. One weapon. It's a sword that comes out of his mouth, which seems perfectly logical, right? That's all he needs to bring. You remember last week when we talked about the word of God, the word of God is 
action, the word of God, the most true and powerful thing, creation itself spoken into existence by the very words of God, John, the author of Revelation, when he wrote his gospel, he begins his gospel making sure we know that we know that we know that this Jesus Christ, he is the word. He was there at the beginning. In fact, John tells us in John 1, everything was actually created through Jesus, even though we didn't recognize him. When he comes to the front lines, when he comes to the final battle, all he needs is the power of his word. Now this morning, as I read verses 6 through 16, we stopped just short of the battle. And I'm not going to cheat you. We've waited this long. We've read all of that. And now we finally arrived. So we're going to get there. I'm going to... I'm going to start in verse 17, right after this passage I read. And the reason I want to start there is because this is some of the best trash talk I've ever heard. We've got all of the armies lined up. They're about to face each other. And then in verse 17, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. He called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses and the riders, the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Dude, that's like Larry Bird level trash talk. They come to the front lines and he starts talking to the vultures. Y'all get ready because you are about to have a feast And then verse 19, John says, I saw the beast, kings of the earth, all of their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. The scene is set. You know, in every epic movie, every epic book, there's always the epic battle. Multitudes, armies lined up field of battle, facing each other, ready for the brutality that's about to commence. I mean, this is, this is Lord of the Rings. This is Game of Thrones. Don't watch Game of Thrones. This is, um, this is Braveheart. They'll never take our freedom. That's where we are. We're there. We're on the field of battle. It's about to happen. Everything has led to this moment. And then in verse 20, the battle starts. But the beast was taken prisoner and along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The end. All of the movies that you've seen, all of the books that you've read, all of the pictures of Armageddon and the great final battle, one verse. They line up and the beast was taken. And you may be thinking, all right, Handy, you can't fool me. Because just a second ago, you read that passage out of Revelation 13. and, And I remember 
12.8, it talks about the dragon that was Satan that gives the beast his power. So yes, he captured the beast. But what about the dragon? Well, let's skip ahead a verse. Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The end. If, if the capture of the beast was anticlimactic, the capture of the dragon is even worse. Jesus didn't even bother to do it himself. He just calls one of the angels and he's like, hey, put that thing on a leash. Let's lock him up. And then it's over. You see, we have been deceived and sometimes we have the misconception that the ultimate and final battle, Armageddon, the battle between right and wrong, love and hate, good and evil is a battle of equal and opposite forces. Let me assure you this morning, it is not. This was not a fair fight, and it never was. The battle has already been won by a Savior so powerful. He can do so simply with a few words. Now, here's the cool thing. This epic, ultimate, final battle where the absolute power of the God of the universe is displayed over all things, we're there. We get to be there. The armies of heaven, that is, the, that is the people of God. We are all there. We are the armies behind the rider on the white horse. And did you notice what we're wearing? Revelation 19, verse 14. You know, let's, let's start back in verse 13 because it adds a nice contrast. The rider on the white horse, the Messiah, he wore a robe dipped in blood. His name was called the Word of God. Verse 14, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. You guys remember that old song? Onward, Christian soldiers. We would all carry the Christian flag, marching as to war. I really should stop singing. Sometimes some of us have been fooled into thinking it is our duty to fight God's battles, to fight for the kingdom. I hear parents that say, it is my ultimate goal to raise warriors for Christ. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God. We've all heard about the armor of God, the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. You've got the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is, a word, which is the Word of God. When we get to the final and ultimate battle, we're not wearing any of that. We're dressed in clean, pure, white 
linen. This, this would be something that would be set aside for a specific purpose. This is like in the South when you're buying that perfect Easter outfit, you know, the seersucker or, or the linen and the bow tie. You don't wear it a week before Easter because you don't want to spill coffee on it or spaghetti sauce or red wine, something that's not going to come out. You want it to be crisp and clean and perfect for that moment. That's what we wear to the final battle because we're not there to fight. I've said this to you a thousand times. I will say this to you again. Jesus doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't need us to fight his battles. Jesus doesn't even need us to help. He fights the battle. He earns the victory. He and he alone gets the glory. We show up in white linen because we're not there to fight. We're there to worship and we're there to celebrate. That celebration is what we see in the first half of Revelation chapter 19. It's a very specific celebration. It's a wedding. It's a wedding party. And and if we're to understand Revelation chapter 19, and frankly, if we're to understand the vast and overwhelming majority of the New Testament, the pictures painted in it, It is so important to understand what an ancient traditional Jewish wedding looked like. Any wedding you've been to pales in comparison to this particular wedding celebration. This was a party to end all parties. A Jewish wedding banquet would last at least a week, oftentimes more. But before you get to the actual banquet, there are several phases of a Jewish wedding that you have to go through. Here we have a wedding. Jesus is the groom. God's people, that's the bride. That's us. We are there awaiting the ceremony, but before the ceremony happens, phase one of a Jewish wedding is the betrothal. Many of us are familiar with that word, especially during this time of the year, because we remember that Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, right? Sometimes that's translated in some of our scriptures as engaged. Engaged doesn't really carry the full picture because it doesn't relate to the way we see engagement at all. See, once you're betrothed, you are for all intent and purposes already married. The wedding has already begun. But the betrothal period lasts an indeterminate amount of time. It may last a year. It may even last more because there are several things that need to happen during that betrothal period. Before the wedding is finalized, before the bride and groom live together. First, the bride price, the dowry has to be paid. The groom and the groom's family would would pay a price, a dowry for the bride. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You were bought with a price. That's the picture that Paul is painting. You are the bride of Christ 
and he has paid your dowry. Now, after the groom pays the bride price, he goes back to his family home and he builds a room onto the house for he and his bride, for the married couple to live in. This takes time. He builds, he prepares, he builds, he prepares. And it's when his father, the groom's father, the master of the house, says the room is ready. The room is complete. The room is prepared for the bride. It's at that point that the wedding can enter into phase two, which is when the groom goes back to the home of the bride to retrieve her and to bring her back into his family permanently. That's when the betrothal period ends. Turn back with me to John chapter 14. I'm going to read a passage for you that many of you have heard countless times, often read at funerals. The first three verses go like this. Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If not, I would not have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. This is the picture Jesus is painting. We are betrothed. The wedding has begun. I am going away to prepare a room in my father's house. My promise to you is I will come back. Here's the crazy thing. That betrothal period, that indeterminate period, could last a year, could last longer. Bride has no way of knowing. In ancient Jewish custom, when the betrothal period starts... The bride would be wedding, ready for her wedding ceremony every single day until it was over. Because someday, her groom, her spouse, was going to show up and was going to take her back to the room he had prepared for her. Waiting in great excitement and anticipation as we are betrothed. You know, in my line of work, I have been blessed to be a part of many wedding ceremonies. I have never been a part of a wedding that the bride didn't show up completely prepared, ready, gorgeous dress, makeup, hair, all of it done, ready for her wedding ceremony. Could you imagine 
if you didn't know exactly when that would be. If Jesus is the groom and we are the bride, the obvious question becomes, are we living our life as though our spouse will show up to take us home any day? Now, what does it look like to live in that excitement and that anticipation of this ultimate celebration and party? Because, because when the groom takes the spouse back home, that's when the party begins. That's when the celebration begins. What does it look like? Well, first, we recognize that the ceremony is coming. We recognize how it came about. You see, you see, the bride doesn't get to make herself a bride. The redemptive story of history is not the bachelorette. Well, we get to stand there with 24 knuckleheads and say, I choose that one. In the redemptive story of of history, God chooses the bride. God chooses us. We simply accept the invitation. We see in Revelation 19 verse 8 that the bride doesn't even choose her own clothes. She's given the pure white linen to wear, this linen that represents righteousness. You see, we're given the righteousness of Jesus, and it's not that we earn that righteousness. It's not that we make our own righteousness. It's it's that we are clothed in his righteousness. The bride is received not for her righteousness, but for her Readiness. But here is to me the ultimate way that we get to live as though this ceremony may happen any day, and that's that we get to live with an absolutely unshakable hope. A hope that does not disappoint. A hope founded and based on the reality that the battle has already been won. A hope faced and fa- based and founded on the reality that our spouse will return. He is coming back to take us forever to be where he is. Hear me say this this morning. Every time this week you sing a Christmas song, you hear away in a manger, you see a nativity scene, and you look at the symbol of that Christ child in that horse stable, you are reminded that God made a way. You are reminded that you are loved so much that the ultimate conqueror 
the warrior king, the rider on the white horse, became that child so that you could be with him forever. Would you all pray with me this morning? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. During this season, God, may we be reminded that the miracle is not that that baby the ultimate conqueror but that the ultimate conqueror became that child and it's in his name that we pray amen